wish you all a happy and healthy 2023 and welcome to Money Multiple. Money Multiple is a show where we explore trends, topics and pathways for private capital investors in Asia to deploy capital and maximize returns. We are at the start of what I predict to be a very interesting year. This comes on the back of a volatile 2022 where an overall deal volumes were down about 30% in Asia Pacific. Moreover, corporates and private investors faced a number of challenges such as slower growth, rising costs, supply chain disruption, labor shortages and high interest rates. Given this backdrop, we will use this episode to talk about what to expect in the next 12 to 18 months. Joining me are two very experienced private equity practitioners with a global perspective. I'd like to welcome Bridget Walsh, EY's global private equity leader, and Alex Lin, Hong Kong bureau chief for Private Equity International Group. I'm your host Luke Pais, EY's Asia Pacific private equity leader. This first section is going to be around broad global trends. So Bridget, let me start with you. As we have discussed, 2022 was a difficult year and anything but predictable. It appears that these effects will cascade into the current year. How do you see activity shaping up in the next 12 to 18 months? Thanks, Luke. As you say, it's a very interesting time for private equity. On the one hand, you've got the challenging headwinds, but the, at the same time, this type of environment creates really interesting opportunities for private equity. And as you know, Luke, the great thing about the private equity model is the ability to evolve and innovate. As we look forward to 2023, starting with the financing market, as you're very well aware, the traditional lending markets to PE have been largely closed for the last six to nine months as interest rates have moved higher and investors have become more risk adverse. However, as you and I were discussing last week, Luke, private equity is flexing. We're seeing them move towards middle market deals where packages are easier to pull together, valuations tend to be lower, and firms are able to write higher equity checks for transactions. We're also seeing, Luke, as we discussed, a lot more add-on deals. And that's a trend that's likely to continue for the foreseeable future. Over the last decade, for example, add-ons have averaged about 50% of total PE activity, whereas right now that there are about 60% of the total PE market. So add-ons to existing portfolios companies are taking up about 60% of the total PE market. And then also PE funds, as we've seen a significant decline in the number of the value of PE deals over the last six months. But, you know, we need to put that in context. Despite the drop-off in announced deals, deal values closed 2022 well above pre-pandemic averages. Indeed, it was the second most active year of the last decade, with PE firms announcing transactions valued at just under 730 billion US dollars. So, Luke, context is everything. And I think you asked me to talk about APAC as well, Luke. We fully expect APAC to continue to be a major growth driver for private equity. You've got favorable demographics and spending patterns coupled with current PE, I suppose, underrepresentation relative to the US and Europe. So there's a lot of interest we're seeing um, from foreign funds. And that should provide really strong tailwinds for the continued growth of Asia PAC-based funds. Luke, does that resonate with what you're seeing on the ground? Thanks, Bridget. I think a number of those messages are absolutely relevant to Asia Pacific as well. So Alex, let me turn to you. 
APAC is clearly of great interest to global fund managers. However, APAC is a number of sub-markets, each operating at a different pace, with value always shifting between markets. What are your views on what to expect in 2023 in an APAC context? Obviously, to your point, Asia-Pacific isn't exempt from, from global challenges, but nor is it one sort of homogenous region. Obviously, it's a collection of very different markets, really. So I guess some of these economic challenges are acting out in different ways across the region. So, I mean, if you take China, for instance, obviously, we've been seeing China reduce interest rates over the past year. Um, South Korea and Australia, on the other hand, are hiking them. And Japan as well has been sticking to this kind of ultra low interest rate environment as well. So it, it is apples and oranges in, in some ways. Um, I mean, if we look at APAC deal value, it was down about sort of 60%, according to figures from DECA. Um, if you compare that to the global average, that is 45%. So obviously, deal value has fallen more sharply than it has globally. And I think this reflects in some ways, obviously, what's been happening in China with the zero COVID policy and firms not being able to get on the ground and, and to do deals. Some markets, though, um, have been a little bit brighter. So Japan uh, seemed to have a great 2022 in terms of deal value. So in the first three quarters of the year, it already exceeded the, the 2021 total, which I think is reflective in some ways of a weaker yen and, and also opportunities from corporate carve-outs, which I, th I think we'll go into more detail later. Southeast Asia and India as well, I think, have benefited a little bit from what's happening in China with pan-Asian firms spreading their capital around the region a little bit more. So this year, I think we'll expect something similar, but I think the figures should be improved given that China is is reopening. Um, there's a little bit of turmoil, obviously, around that now, but I think as that kind of levels out, then I think there's going to be a lot of firms with a lot of dry powder wanting to put that to work. Thanks, Alex. China in the last few years has taken the biggest share of investments in the region when it comes to private equity. The last 12 months has seen a significant drop. Do you see funds reallocating capital to other regions? Or do you expect this to be a temporary pause in China? I think it is easy to overstate this shift of capital away from China. I mean, yes, from what we've heard, some pan-Asian firms are putting that money to work in other markets, as I say, in, in India and Southeast Asia. But China will still represent a very significant part of these portfolios. I mean, historically, it's been a massive driver of returns. And it is the biggest market in terms of you know the, the deals that are out there. So I don't think China private equity will will diminish in significance at all for, for these firms. I think as well, you know, from the conversations that I'm having, some firms are actually seeing this as a great opportunity with with fewer China funds being raised and obviously some firms being a little bit more reticent to invest there than they were historically. Competition should actually be a little bit lower. So obviously you have an opportunity to to buy assets that might be um, well priced and obviously you'll have to fend off fewer funds. So um, it could be a great time to invest in China if you have the willingness and the capital to do so. Let's talk about fundraising and dry powder. Capital continues to accumulate in the hands of private equity GPs. And I think this shows quite a great deal of trust in PE as an asset class relative to other classes. But it also puts a great deal of pressure on multiples and returns. What are your thoughts when it comes to fundraising in 2023 and maybe as we look forward into 2024? Yeah, so if we look at uh, preliminary figures from, from our own fundraising data, Asia-Pacific fundraising, it was down about 26% last year from 2021. And again, if we compare that to global figures, that was only down about 14%. So it has declined, again, more sharply than in other markets, as we saw with filmmaking. And again, this is going to be in no small part due to what's happened in China. It's obviously the biggest market, and you have this kind of one-two punch of 
geopolitical tensions, which aren't new, but, but are ongoing. And then obviously this zero COVID policy, which has diminished certainly among North American LPs, which, as we know, are the biggest source of capital, some of their appetites specifically for sort of China-focused funds as opposed to pan-regional. So I think going into this year, some funds will be optimistic. The appetites will resume a little bit now that you know deals can start to be done. People can travel, people can shake hands and hopefully build some new LP relationships. I think one of the interesting trends that we did see last year is less than half the number of funds had closed as of December than in the prior year, which means obviously the average fund size is getting much larger and and capital is essentially getting concentrated in a smaller number of, of funds. So this sort of flight to quality or flight to perceived safety in Asia. One other interesting thing to note is private credit conversely, has had a great year last year. So PAG in December, for example, very big, very famous pan-Asian firm, it raised one of the region's largest ever private credit funds. It was $2.6 So that fund brought 2022's fundraising total to well over $11 billion, and that's, that's a record. So I think this could actually end up this year having positive implications for both PE and for private credit. Um, according to the same Decade report that I mentioned earlier, it was saying that APAC GPs now actually use private credit to finance buyouts more than they do bank financing. So even if we do see banks continue to be reticent to lend, a little bit more cautious, hopefully in Asia, deal financing shouldn't be as much of an issue with all of this dry powder and private credit to deploy. Thanks, Alex. So the large GPs are getting larger, and as part of that, they are implementing multiple strategies. The word that comes to mind is flexible capital. Bridget? With your global vantage point, can you talk us through some recent examples where you see this creativity and flexibility at play? I love uh, that term, Luke, flexible capital. I think I think it's a, it could be our term of FY23. Um, when we look at the types of deals that we are seeing and expect to see over the next 6 to 12 months, we do see private equity being really flexible in their approach and leaning into certain types of deals. I think the first one I'd like to mention is take privates. There's a lot of really interesting opportunities in this space now that valuations have reduced, especially in the tech sector. With all the IPO activity that we saw in 2020 and 2021, there's a lot of value to be had for the right assets. And firms have been really active in this space. Just to quote some statistics, in a typical year, we expect to see take privates account for about 20% of the global investment capital that private equity deploys. Last year, it was about 40%. So that's a very significant uptake. And this sort of activity was prominent in Asia-specific. Another trend, Luke, is infrastructure. And we've seen a few deals already in that space, but can expect more. And that's where a PE firm can come in, work with a corporate to provide financing at scale for capital-intensive projects, and where corporates are able to lower their cost of capital while keeping cash on their books. The semiconductor, telecom, transportation, renewables, and digital infrastructure spaces are just a few of the areas where these type of deals can make space. We've seen some real headline ones in North America recently in infrastructure, and we're predicting much more private equity activity across the globe here and in Asia Pac. And then I think the other area, as Alex quite rightly mentioned, uh, that underpins all of this is the growth of private credit. 
three to four years ago, private debt was probably 10 to 20 percent of the overall financing market for private equity. It was about one third in the first half of 2022, and it's about half in the second half. And actually, for most of the deals in the US and Europe, almost all private equity financing at the moment is coming from private credit funds. So that's almost certainly to be one of the most lasting legacies of this market is the elevation of private debt as a funding mechanism for PE transactions. Alex, what is your call for the big investment themes in Asia Pacific in 2023? PE firms in general seem pretty excited about um, the the carve-out opportunities in in APAC this year. I was at an industry conference the other day and it kept coming up in, in conversations. So Japan is obviously the, the big one. I mean, that that's kind of an ongoing trend in Japan, these corporate carve-outs. We saw in October last year uh, a consortium led by Bain. They carved out Hitachi Metals, and I think it was reportedly more than $5 billion, that, that deal. So that's obviously contributed to the um, impressive deal statistics last year in Japan. Um, again, also the weaker yen, I think, has made those conditions more favorable. Uh, there's a lot of kind of global funds in Japan with U.S. dollar-denominated funds to deploy. So that's obviously an opportunity there. The yen is, is starting to come back a little bit, but I mean, it's still way down. So I think that trend should should be ongoing for, for some while yet. I think other markets as well, Korea and Australia, you'll see some of that carve-out activity. And again, to Bridget's point, I think firms that I've spoken to are, are pretty excited about the opportunity to, to take some businesses private. Obviously, with public valuations down, um, the premiums that they're going to have to pay on those uh, should be much lower. So um, yeah, it could be a good time to, to deploy that dry capital, dry powder. Both take privates and carve-outs tend to be incredibly complex. And I think private equity buyers need to have a very clear and well-articulated value creation thesis. While this is probably true in every transaction, I think it's even more important in the case of a carve-out transaction. Bridget, can you share with us your thoughts, maybe even an example of a well-executed carve-out? As Alex mentioned, these types of environments really do naturally lend themselves to carve-outs. You know, we're finding that corporates are focusing on their core business in this time and divesting non-core assets. And, you know, PE funds can do really, really well in this space and actually compete for some of the larger assets um, where the the level of complexity is much higher and and maybe prohibits other buyers. Um, We've had great experience of this over the years. And, you know, most recently, I've worked on a $5 billion carve out in, in here in EMEA, one of the biggest that we've ever done from one of our large consumer uh, goods companies. And as you say, Luke, the key to that, the key to that is a really clear execution plan, because when you think about it, you know, you're standing up a management team, you're standing up all of the infrastructure, the IT systems, etc. So, execution is everything. And that's what we really built value creation teams to help with. And when we talk about value creation, PE firms really have more levers to pull than they've ever had before. You know, the traditional levers on the revenue and growth side, like commercial acceleration and price optimization, but equally on the cost and operational excellence side, like cost takeouts and supply chain resilience. So, for example, periods of increased volatility always elevates the importance of cash discipline, Luke. And we're really seeing, as I know you are, huge demand for those services around cash and also how to optimize working capital in order to free up locked in cash that can be used for acquisitions, repayment of debt, etc. 
And as you know, Luke, globally, we've strategically built these value creation teams to focus on this phase of the private equity industry. And I really do feel that we are in that value creation phase of private equity at the moment, Luke, you know, to really get those multiples in this environment. So I think to summarize, when we think about this environment, we know that one, debt is getting more expensive and coming with more covenants. But secondly, multiple expansion, certainly for companies acquired over the last couple of years, is more challenging. And it's therefore operational restructuring and these value creation levers that become the competitive differentiations. And that's certainly the case, whether it's a carve out to take private or even an acquisition of a family owned business. Huge area of focus at the moment and a real value driver. I wanted to touch upon one specific value creation lever, which is environmental, social and good governance. I think this has been front and center in recent times. Is it fair to say that private equity has been slower to embrace ESG? Is this the function of linking ESG to returns delivered on investments? I would say ESG is top of our private equity clients' minds at the moment. They've made heavy investments in building out their capabilities here. They've hired very senior people for example, to lead the effort and build a framework that integrates ESG into all levels of the private equity complex, whether that's the general partner, the fund or the portfolio companies. And that's really important because when you consider all the portfolio companies that the private equity funds control, they can be a massive lever for positive social change. And I'm a huge believer that actually private equity is going to affect a huge amount of the ESG change that we globally are trying to achieve. And they're in in the middle, I would say, of shifting the way they look at ESG from a purely risk management consideration for private equity to a real actual value driver. And I would say that's the biggest shift that we've seen. We see private equity firms acquiring best-in-class companies from an ESG perspective, but we also see them acquiring companies that are less sophisticated here, but starting them on their journey. And while private equity firms are engaged here because it's the right thing to do, they also expect to see an ROI on those investments. Look, there's a growing body of of evidence that companies that have their ESG house in order perform better than those that don't. And of course, private equity is very attuned to this. These companies are rewarded by the higher market with increased top-line growth, and they tend to be better managed overall. We recently undertook a survey of PE investors as part of our global divestment study, and it showed that more than 70%, 70% of private equity investors reported that they expected to capture an ESG premium in the businesses they were exiting. Looking at live examples where we're working with operating partners who've acquired a private equity asset, and they're saying, we've got to refresh this supply chain. We've got to look at new ways of manufacturing, but they're actually using that as a way to bring ESG in and do it in a more ESG-friendly way. Again, with an eye on that multiple at exit, Their belief is that will be rewarded by the market. And Alex, what are your thoughts in terms of APAC GPs embracing ESG? I guess historically, APAC GPs have slightly lagged on ESG adoption relative to markets like Europe, for instance. Um, I think as well to Bridget's point about the the risk management versus value creation driver thing. I mean, I think the risk management uh, perception of ESG is perhaps still a little bit stronger here. But I think... uh, 
one thing to note is obviously as the fundraising environment becomes more challenging for private equity firms and and also you know the end of cheap money you know this period where it's reasonably easy to sort of make returns um, simply through through leverage that that's obviously coming to an end so now there's much more of an onus on firms to to obviously uh, prove their value creation credentials and and also obviously to drive returns so I think what we may see is is a bit of a catalyzing effect here where firms you know do realize that, that obviously if ESG can be used as a value creation tool that they better, you know, start taking it seriously. And those that are able to demonstrate they can use ESG as a value creation driver, I think ultimately could end up not only doing better from a returns perspective, but also in in securing LP commitments. I think as well, it's also important to consider the fact that climate crisis is becoming much harder to ignore here in Asia. I mean, if you take a look at, you know, Australia, we had those terrible bushfires um, a couple of years ago, and and see flooding in places like Indonesia. So, I think as well with with events like this, ESG is going to be forced up the agenda even further, and and things like net zero pledges and so on. Perhaps people will start having to think about those a little bit more. Value creation has many dimensions and topics. Bridget, given the current operating environment, do you see a reprioritization of initiatives from revenue growth to cost and cash management? To be honest, Luke, there definitely has in the short term. Um, I think, you know, when we sort of had to deal with this financial crisis of the last few months, uh, there was definitely a doubling down in funds, uh, initial, the initial phase to look into the portfolio. And that's where we saw a great call on all the services we offer around cash management, cost out, etc. However, as, as companies and funds are now looking into the year ahead in FY23, we're starting to see Again, that being raised more to a top line focus. So as you would have expected, I think the initial focus was on cost and cash. Um, and again, these funds are very sophisticated around this. And um, I think that those disciplines that have been put in place will continue. But also, you know, a real recognition again to get the multiple expansion that you need both. So I think we're seeing a little bit of a shift now back to the top line as well. Thank you, Bridget. With that, I also want to spend a few minutes on exits. The pandemic delayed exits in 2020 and 2021, and the global environment in 2022 created further complexity. Can I get your thoughts on whether the next two years will be better exit years for PE and what GPs need to do to prepare for these? Thanks, Luke. You're absolutely right. That's the other fundamental part of this private equity equation, the exit side. And you're right. Last year, we saw about a 40% decline in exit activity. In 2021, we saw almost 300 private equity-backed IPOs, which was by far a record. Last year, we saw just 20. But the good news is that for a lot of firms, there was not tremendous urgency here. And in fact, when I talk to my clients, a lot of them would rather be buyers than sellers in this type of market. And more importantly, I think if we put it in context, They've been so active over the last few years selling portfolio companies that thankfully there's not a lot of pressure at the moment to offload portfolios in suboptimal conditions. And for those really in need of liquidity, Luke, the secondary markets are very active and much more mature than in the past. Ten years ago, there was very limited liquidity. It was about a five to $10 billion market that was largely characterized by distressed sellers. But as you know, today, that market routinely sees more than $100 billion 
in transactions, and it's been far more integrated into private equity thinking as a key liquidity tool. And it's another great example of the point we made earlier about how the private equity industry continues to evolve and innovate. But where the downturn in exits we've seen really has had an impact is on fundraising. Come back, coming back to what Alex was talking about earlier. Last year, private equity fundraising was down about 15% globally, in part because of reduced distributions back to LPs, which make up about 80% of new commitments. That's a dynamic we expect will continue into at least the first half of this year as well. The functional impact of this on deployment, at least from an industry level, is going to be to offset to a large degree the amount of dry powder the firms already have. You know, as you know, Luke, and we talk about a lot, there's more than 1.2 trillion (laughs) dry powder. When you put it in that context, Luke, I don't think private equity firms are going to be capital constrained uh, for the foreseeable future. And in fact, one of my colleagues was saying the other day um, that the opposite is true. There's huge pressure to deploy this capital at the moment. In fact, he had a great saying, saying it was more physics than economics. There's so much pressure in the system with this $1.2 trillion floating around, you know, for funds to make investments as soon as they see opportunities out there. I like the expression more physics than economics. On that note, can I get final thoughts from both of you? I think in conclusion, this market, although challenging, again, plays to the innovative and evolving nature of private equity. And I think private equity will, on the whole, find um, opportunities in this market. And as we discussed, a huge amount of um, that opportunity rests in APAC. To be honest, what we're going to see is is this being a year of sort of haves and, and have-nots. So I think it will be really interesting to see in China how this plays out. Obviously, it's been very difficult to raise funds there, um, and it will continue to be challenging. But I think we're going to see those who can raise and perhaps some of those who perhaps won't be in a position to do so after this happening. So I think that, you know, it could be a, a real shakeout of, of sort of GP talent in in Asia more broadly this year. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where that capital ends up. Bridget, Alex, thank you for joining us and sharing some great insights. It certainly appears that 2023 is going to be a very interesting and promising year for private capital. However, there is a lot of work to do. Over the next few episodes, we will dive deeper into some of the topics that were discussed today such as sector investment themes, value creation, sustainability, and exit readiness. Stay tuned and thank you for joining us at Money Multiple. You have been listening to Money Multiple. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 